Um, we've, today's message is entitled Lost and Found, and we're going to be talking about what is probably uh, the most memorable story that Jesus ever told. In fact, Charles Dickens said that this was the greatest story ever told by anybody, and that's high praise coming from a guy who knows a thing or two about stories. The story is the story of the prodigal son. And it's a, it's a great story. It's a terrible title, but it's a, it's a great story. We're going to talk about that more in just a few. And we can find that story in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to have the scripture up here on the screen so you can follow along with us. I'll be reading out of the ESV uh, version today. Before we get started, let's just pray. Father God, we thank you so much for blessing us with this time that we can meet together as your church and pour over your word. God, we want your word to penetrate our hearts today and change us from the inside out. And we know that the way that that works is by the power of your Holy Spirit. So right now, we just pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and make your word alive in us so that we can be changed for your glory. For your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. So it was, uh, it was a, a few years ago now, and uh, I decided I wanted to take the kids on a hike. And so we grabbed our sunscreen, and we grabbed our sunglasses, and we hit the car. First stop, gas station, so that we could fuel up to get to where we're going. And as I'm pumping gas, I can hear giggling coming from the back seat of the car, and I know exactly what's happening. You see, I've got tinted windows on the car, and so anytime that I would get out to pump gas, the girls in the back seat would make faces at me through the tinted window, knowing that they can't, that I can't see them, you know? And uh, when you're that young, this is very amusing. And so they're giggling, and I figure on this occasion, uh, I would surprise them and start making faces back at them. So I'm pumping gas, and and they start laughing. And the harder they're laughing, the more I'm getting into it, right? So they're cracking up. And I start making the noise that goes with the face. So I'm pumping gas. And, go, and uh, we're having a great time. And uh, I, it was probably a, a minute later, I looked up. And there, there's a guy jumping into his truck. And he's about to leave. And before he does, he looks over at me. And he shoots me a dirty look. And my first thought was, what's this guy's problem? Like, what is this bothering this guy about I'm playing with my kids at the gas station? What's the big deal? And then it hit me. This guy has no idea that my kids are in the car, my windows are tinted, and he can't see that I'm looking down into the car because I'm wearing my sunglasses. And so all he sees is me looking in his direction going, and he was mad, you know? And at first I felt bad, but then I thought, Maybe you should just take it as a compliment, you know? That's probably what I would have done. But the point is, you can walk into the middle of a situation, and if you don't have all of the relevant details, you might misunderstand what's going on. You might miss the big picture. And uh, that can happen in life at the gas station. Uh, it can especially happen when we're reading our Bible. The Bible is a long, complex book. It was written a long time ago. And the truth is, you're going to come across scriptures as you're reading where you're going to need to take a time out and say, well, what are the details that I need to understand so that I can get the most out of the scripture so I can understand what's going on? Um, I used to do this thing when I was uh, much, much younger where you take the Bible 
and you go, okay, God, what do you have for me today? And you open the Bible, you just start reading, like wherever. It's probably not the, the best plan for getting all the way through the Bible, but I think we do that, right? Uh, so this, what do you got for me today? And, uh, you know, at one point I opened up and found myself in like the Jewish Old Testament ceremonial laws. And so I'm reading through scripture and it says, well, I, I can't eat shellfish and I can't touch pigs and, uh, and I can't wear clothing made out of mixed fabrics. Like, my favorite shirt is the cotton poly blend. Like, am I in trouble right now? No, no. Because as you learn the relevant details, as you get filled in, you start to understand, okay, these were, were rules made for a particular people at a particular time to separate them out from the rest of that society and for them to use for ceremonial purposes. I wasn't the target audience. Okay, now I get it. Now I understand. And, you know, fast forward to Revelation, and here comes a harlot, and she's riding on a scarlet beast. And I'm thinking, who is this promiscuous woman, and how did she acquire a scarlet beast? Like, what is a scarlet beast? I don't know. But then you get the relevant details. You go, oh, John was writing a particular style of book. He's writing apocalyptic literature. He's using pictures to sort of describe to you, to communicate to you. And his audience would have been familiar with that imagery. And so, oh, okay, I get it now because now I've got the context. I've got the details. I understand. And if we just go to Luke chapter 15 and we start reading the story of the prodigal son where it begins in verse 11, we might misunderstand why this story was so controversial. If we give it just a quick reading, we go, well, this is a very uplifting picture of God's grace, and it's a feel-good story. But when this story was told, it ruffled some feathers. It made people angry. And we want to understand why. So we're going to go all the way back to uh, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors... And sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The people are drawing near to Jesus because they recognize he's special and he has a special message, and they just want to sit at his feet and they want to listen to him. But the Pharisees, Listen to what they say. Oh, he's receiving sinners and he's eating with them. And, and if we were there at that time, we would probably say the same thing. Look, there's Jesus. He's receiving sinners and he's eating with them. Get him, Jesus. Like, yes. But that's not the attitude of the Pharisees, right? The, the scripture says the Pharisees were grumbling. They're angry. They're complaining. Why? What do they care? Well, here's the problem. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, these people were lower than everybody else. These are, these are sinners and tax collectors. They're unclean. And guess what, Jesus? They don't deserve grace. They don't deserve scripture. You are wasting your time with them. Jesus, don't you know how things work around here? Which, if you think about it, is kind of funny because here's the creation telling the creator, like, hey, don't you know how things are supposed to work? Yeah. This is like the greatest episode of Undercover Boss, like ever, right? Because the Pharisees are supposed to know everything about Scripture and about God, and there is the incarnate God. He is standing there in the flesh right in front of them, 
and they don't know. They don't recognize him. You see, because the Pharisees are the religious elite of the day and, uh, and they follow the rules and they've, they've memorized the scripture and they're doing the work, but they don't have a relationship with the Father. And so there is Jesus standing in their presence. They have no idea who he is. They don't even, they don't even know. All works, no relationship. And so that's the setup and that's why Jesus begins telling this story. And he starts uh, in chapter three, he says, so he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so... I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. For I've found the coin that I lost just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Theologians will, will talk about and discuss whether or not these stories are allegories. You guys know what an allegory is? It's basically a, a very tight analogy. It's a story where every part of the story means something or represents something very specific. And so people will say, well, uh, well clearly we're the sheep. And uh, when we wander around, Jesus is the good shepherd. So he comes out and he finds us. And then he puts us on his shoulders because we don't have anything to do with our own redemption. It's Jesus that does the work. And so, uh, so that's what this must mean. Maybe. And they say, they say um, well, and the woman... Well, that could be the church because the church is the bride of Christ. And so when something falls away, it's the church's job to light the lamp and sweep up the corners and, and find it. it. And maybe, but what we want to do is we want to focus on what Jesus was focused on. We want to see the point that he makes twice emphatically, right? Not once, but twice. And so this is the point that Jesus is trying to drive home. He says, you know that feeling when you've lost something that's yours and you find it and you get it back? Oh, you know how good that feels? That's the joy of God in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance. So in a way, Jesus is kind of cracking open a window to heaven so that we can see the heart of the Father, so we can see when somebody comes to repentance and is saved, there's a party. He's saying, you know that feeling? That's how God feels. He's saying, you have a hundred of something and you lose one, well, that feels good and you party. You call the neighbors and you party. And, and when you have 10 of something and you lose one, within you, you really get after it. You really party. Just celebrate. What if you have just two of something and they're not sheep and they're not silver coins, but they're kids? What if you have two of something two sons. Jesus continues. 
He said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in the country, and he became in need. So he went he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father. And you know what? I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And he said to him, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. And they begin to celebrate. If we just read this super fast, here's what we come away with. If we just kind of skim through the text, here's what we come away with. Well, there was a son, and uh, he took everything he had, and he went, he wasted it, and then he got hungry, and he came back to the father, and the father accepted him, amen, we can all go home. But, uh, but Jesus, if you, if you really look at what he's saying, Jesus goes very far out of his way to describe somebody who is the lowest, baddest, most terrible sinner ever. I mean, Jesus is putting these details in the story that would have just horrified the Pharisees. Right, the first thing that the kid does is he goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance. Do you all know when you get an inheritance? When that person dies. And so he goes to his father and he says, listen, I want the stuff. I want your stuff. I really don't care about your relationship. As far as I'm concerned, you could be dead. I just want the stuff. Then when he gets the stuff, he doesn't even stay in the father's house. He leaves and he goes off to a far country. He doesn't just waste his money, he squanders it in reckless living, all right? We are talking like music video from like an 80s hair metal band, like that's how bad, like this guy's like in Vegas, like making it rain, he's just throwing cash away, it's bad. And then when he, there's a famine and he gets hungry, he hires himself out to work for a Gentile. He's in a far off country. The Gentile doesn't even give him a normal job, Jesus says. He's, he makes him go feed pigs. As a young Jewish boy, this boy should not even be touching pigs. That's one of the rules. This boy is not just feeding the pigs. He is jealous of what the pigs are eating. Do you guys see the picture that Jesus is painting here? He's putting this sinner so low that the Pharisees can't believe it. 
But when he comes to his right mind, when he comes to his self, he says, you know what? The stuff didn't work. The stuff didn't make me happy. Sin was maybe fun for a minute or two, but it's not the relationship that I had with my father. And even my father's servants have more than what they need. He starts to realize, what I need isn't the stuff. What, What I need is to be back in my father's house. So he starts making up this story, you know. I do this when I'm in trouble sometimes. Uh, I'll make up the story. All right, here's what I'm going to say. And I rehearse it in my head. All right, then I'm going to say this. Then I'm going to say that. And that's what this sinner is doing. He's making up a story as he's walking. Okay, I'm going to tell my father. Okay, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. He doesn't even get all the way home. And the father sees him while he's still a long way off, which means the father was looking for him to return. And he runs out to the son. Picture this. He runs out to the son. He doesn't even let the son get all the way through his speech. He says, no, no, no. Get him a robe. Put shoes on his feet. Get him a ring for his hand. In that day, a ring would have been a signet ring. It would have symbolized you belong in this family. That would have been like your identity. He's saying, put a ring on his hand so that the world knows he is mine. Bring the fatted calf. Get the music started. Let's go. Let's party. Let's go. I want to celebrate because I had two sons and I lost one. And now he's back. And I'm so overjoyed that he's back that we are going to celebrate right now. So when we look at this story, uh, it's pretty natural for us to go, that's us. That's us. We are the saved sinner. Yeah, because the story ends uh, good. There's a happy ending. We love to put ourselves in stories that have happy endings, right? So we're the, we're the, we're the younger son. Just like um, in David and Goliath. Who are we in David and Goliath, right? We're David. Yeah, we're David. David wins. <laughs> Who are we in David and Bathsheba? Not David. Not David, right? Because we're, like, we're not David anymore. Just doesn't have a happy ending. So, and if the story ended right here, that would be it. But don't forget the details. Jesus is giving us this story. He's teaching this lesson because of a particular situation. The Pharisees are out there and they're pointing the finger and they're going, they don't deserve your time. We deserve your time. We are the ones that do the work. We've memorized the scripture. It's us, Jesus, not them. You don't don't need to be receiving them and eating with them. What are you doing? But there's more to the story. Jesus is going to introduce us to another character. And and this is where it gets real. It says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, not the father. He called one of the servants and asked these, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me even a young goat 
that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came who has devoured all of your property with prostitutes and he killed the fatted calf for him. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and now he is alive. He was lost, but now he's found. The brother doesn't want to go in and celebrate. He doesn't want to celebrate. He is, he is the brother in this story that is every bit as lost as the younger brother. He has every bit of a relationship problem with the father as the younger brother. We can tell by the things he's saying. How does he address the father? Does he even call him father? He goes, no. Hey, look. <gasps> he says, this son of yours, he won't even acknowledge that this is his brother. Is this son of yours. He doesn't deserve for you to receive him and eat with him and celebrate with him. He doesn't deserve that because I'm the one that does the work. I follow the rules. I've memorized the books. I'm, I'm the one in the house. And I think it's probably at this point that the Pharisees begin to understand what this story is actually about. You see, Jesus is telling this story as a cautionary tale. It sounds familiar probably to the Pharisees. This older son, they don't deserve your time. You shouldn't be receiving him and eating with him because we do the work. As a matter of fact, the, this, this works that they've focused on, this self-righteousness, has caused them to totally miss the idea of the celebration completely. You notice what he says? I, I found this interesting. The son says, you killed the fatted calf for him? You don't even give me a young goat so I can go celebrate with my friends. I'm like, boy, you missed it. You missed it. You totally missed the whole idea of the celebration. You see, Jesus, this is the third story Jesus is telling, right? And the first one, um, the, the shepherd finds his sheep and he's excited. Who celebrates? The sheep? No, the shepherd. And the woman loses her coin and she finds it. Who celebrates the coins? No, of course not. The woman. Because what's being celebrated is the relationship, the receiving back of something that belongs to you. And you're excited because it's back. And the young son misses it. He thinks it's a party for the son. It's not a party for the son. The party is for the father because he is the one experiencing joy that his son is back. And the young son, or the, the older son, completely misses it. He doesn't even get it because he's so focused on works and he's so focused on all the things that he's doing that it's begun to harden his heart and blind him so that now he's no longer even, uh, he doesn't value the things that his father values. He doesn't love the things that his father loves. And he's not ready to celebrate the things that his father is celebrating because there's a relationship problem because he's as lost as his brother is. 
See, the father never once said, I'm celebrating because this is my son and, and he was imperfect and now he's perfect. And, and, and the father never said, well, this is my son and, and he was sinful, but now he's sinless. That's not what the father said. He said he was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he is alive. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. The, the story of the prodigal son, it's an awesome story. It's a terrible title. Maybe we should have called it, maybe we should have named it the story of the two lost kids. Maybe the prodigal sons, plural, both sons in the story are completely lost. One, because of willful disobedience, led him from the father's house, but the other is in the father's house and his own self-righteousness is driving him from the father's grace. They're both moving away from the cross of grace in different directions, sure, but they're both equally as gone. It, this, is, this is hard to hear, but I, but I want you to hear this, and I, and I want you to just think about this. This older brother sin, it's more common than you think, and it's more dangerous than you can imagine. It's more common than you think. It's more dangerous than you can imagine, because it's really easy to point out somebody's outward sin and go, look, sin, and it's so much more difficult to be sitting in the Father's house. You're sitting in church every single week and it's so difficult to look inward at the sin that's hidden in your heart that other people can't see and identify it and say, I need repentance from this. I need God to fix me. And so we have to be so careful because, because at least the younger son got to a place where he said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. It, it drove him to a place. He said, I need repentance. But, but the danger is that the older son is at home in the father's house and he doesn't even know. He doesn't even know that he needs his father's grace. He's just, he's blinded. He's lost and he's blind. And that's what makes this so dangerous. How often do we go to... Um, uh, church service, and we, we sit in the church service, and a uh, preacher will preach a story, and then at the end, he'll say, if you're struggling with this, if I can pray for you, if you need to repent, he says, just, just raise your hand, and I'll pray with you, and uh, there are times when we will just sit there and go, no, I'm good. I'm good, because look, I'm here. I'm here in church. I make it every Sunday. I'm five minutes early. I set up. I break down. I teach a Bible study. I do a worship class. I work with you. I do this. I do that. I do all these things. I'm fine. Thanks, but no thanks. And that's the older brother in us. I'm not immune. I've caught myself, you know, many times. I'll just confess to you right now. Just many times. You know, I see somebody that's got something and it's amazing. And I go, wow, that's, look at that. That person is so blessed. 
they don't even, they don't even love God. Look at that person, hates God. Look how they're living. That's, that's older brother voice coming out in me. Where, or there'll be times I'll be praying and I'll say, God, I'm, I'm struggling with this thing. And those people over there, they're not struggling with it. And they don't even like it. I love you and I serve you and I pray and I'm here. Why am I still struggling with this thing? And that's the older brother voice coming out in me. It's, it's, it's those moments where I need the power of the Holy Spirit to say, stop, refocus on the relationship. I need the Holy Spirit to say, Mike, get your heart in line so that you can care about what God cares about. So that you can be in God's will. So that you can love the things that God loves. So you can celebrate the things that God celebrates. So this morning, I, I just, I would just want to take a moment where we can reflect, where we can look inwards and just ask God to examine our hearts, to point out that tiny, unseen, subtle voice of the older brother in our lives so that we can ask God to take that from us so it doesn't get us to the place where we become hard and blind so that, so that we can continue to love who God wants us to love and celebrate the things that God wants us to celebrate so that we can be aligned with his will. You see, the story, there's no conclusion. The story just ends. That last line that we read, that's, that's it. That's the end of the story. You know why? Because Jesus is telling this story to illustrate what's happening in real time with the situation that he was facing. He is telling us the greatest story ever told, and he's telling it in real time to show the Pharisees here you are, you're standing outside the house and you can come in and you can celebrate because receiving these sinners and eating with them, that's what makes me happy because they were lost and now they're found. And we're not told about the decisions that the Pharisees make. And so the story just ends. This morning, um, if, you could just, if you could just close your eyes and just bow your heads. No looking around from side to side, just eyes closed, every eye closed, every head bowed. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I'm the younger brother, you know? I've been willfully disobedient and I've left my father's house. I just want you to know that the moment that you turn back towards the father's house, the Father will run for you. But if you're here today and your knee-jerk reaction is to go, no, I'm good. No, I'm fine. No, I'm here. And that's all that matters. 
I want to let you know that the Father, the Father is telling you this morning, you need grace just like everybody else. It's not, it's not by works. It's, it's nothing that we do to save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to get closer to God. It's just God's grace. And we, we are never in a position to not need God's grace. So this morning, if you would say, God, I just, I want to get my heart in line with your will. If, if this morning you would say, God, I want to value what you value. I want to love who you love. And I want to celebrate what you celebrate. Because the stuff isn't enough because we need the relationship with you. It's more than we need. It's more than we need. With every head bowed and every eyes closed, if that's you this morning and you just want to tell God, I want to be in line with your will, just sneak your hand up so I can see and so I can pray with you. Thank you, thank you. You can go ahead and put your hands down. I just want to pray, Father God, Thank you for calling us to this place of repentance. Father God, we need you. It's not about the stuff. It's about the relationship. It's not about our works. It's about your grace. It's about your love. This morning, we turn back towards you. And we sit here just in full surrender to you, God. We just want to be in the house. We want to be near you. We want a relationship with you. We are excited to be your children, not because of things that we've done, but because of the way that you love us. This morning, we want to get in line with your will. God, speak to us clearly. God, penetrate our hearts this morning. Show us the things that you value. Show us how you want to celebrate so that we can celebrate with you. God, we love you and we need you. You are everything for us. Without you, we are lost and hopeless. We just run to you and we cling to you and we declare you are our God and you are more than what we need. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.